Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about trade, technology, and economic disruption. It's about claims that robots are coming for our jobs. We'll be joined by Richard Baldwin of the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Richard is the author of The Great Convergence, as well as a brand new book on technology and trade called The Globotics Upheaval, Globalization, Robotics, and the Future of Work. We'll be talking about both. Richard, hello. Hello, great to be here. We'll get to a new book, but first let's talk about The Great Convergence. In that one, you summarize these three big waves of globalization. What are they? Well, so I think of globalization as driven by arbitrage. That is to say, whenever the relative price of things are different in different countries, companies can make money by making it or buying it where it's cheap and selling it somewhere else. And that arbitrage is hindered by three types of cost. Trade costs, which makes it difficult to arbitrage goods. Communication costs, which makes it difficult to arbitrage ideas, especially complex ideas. And face-to-face costs, which makes it very difficult to arbitrage wage differences across countries. Now, what happened in around 1820 was steam technology lowered the costs of moving goods extremely fast by the 19th century standards, and goods started crossing borders as people arbitrage that. That's what I call the first unbundling because it allowed production and consumption to be physically separated, geographically separated. So another way of putting it is that these ways of globalization first reduce the cost of moving things around, then the second reduce the cost of moving ideas around. And the question for the future is whether this third wave is going to reduce the cost of moving people around the world. Or quite specifically, not so much moving people, but moving labor services. So what I'm thinking is that people will sit in one country and work in offices in another, and that's an unbundling of workers and work. Let's focus on the first wave for a bit longer. You mentioned steam technology. Could you talk a bit more about the form that that disruption took? I mean, in a way, it's quite funny to think of globalization as happening that recently. You know, there have been huge developments of society from hunter-gatherers to to where we are today. Is it it really that recent? Well, so I'm, I'm glad you asked that. The whole first three chapters of my book looks at globalization going back to 200,000 years ago with the emergence of Homo sapiens. So I do look at the old globalizations. But what's truly different about what happened around 1820, and this isn't my analysis, this is from economic historians like Jeffrey Williamson from Harvard and Kevin O'Rourke from Oxford. What they found was that around 1820, domestic prices started responding to international supply and demand conditions, not just domestic supply and demand conditions. So in some ways, this was the beginning of economic globalization, where conditions inside a country were substantially affected by international conditions in the markets. Now, before Buddhism spread from India to China, it took a few hundred years. The magnetic compass went from China to Europe. That took a few hundred years. We did exchange ideas, but the amount of trade in goods was not large enough to move the dial economically. So for example, example, Madison documents all the Europe-Asia trade in the 1700s, and he calculates that there was only a couple hundred shipments, each of a few dozen tons of cargo that went between the two. And when there was about 25 million Europeans back there, if you take it 
per European, that's basically a rounding error. And in fact, it all ended up on the tables of the elite. So it was a big thing for a very small range of people. And our history books are filled with these princes and pirates and priests. But for the average person, everything they made was made within walking distance. Okay, but then, as you say, you get to the early 1800s in the beginning of economic globalization, where not only new technologies, but also trade is beginning to affect the average person for the first time. So I want to talk about the backlash, because nowadays everyone seems to be worried about potential disruptions arising from this stuff. Are there famous examples from this period of a big political force pushing back against trade? So around 1820, because of the steam revolution and also the end of the Napoleonic Wars, which ended the blockade with continental sources of wheat, the price of wheat or grain in the UK fell, and that hurt the landed elite. They had Parliament pass a set of laws called the Corn Laws, which kept the price of grain high for 50 years, despite the fact that trade in wheat was liberal, at least in principle and technologically. It was the repeal of the Corn Laws in, I think it was 1846, was it, that eventually sort of led to the free trade movement. But the backlash was protectionist, led by the landed elite to protect the value of their land, and they controlled parliament so they could do that. And of course, all listeners know that The Economist was founded in 1843 as part of this movement against the Corn Laws. Right. The Economist was part of the great propaganda machine by the capitalists who were taking power from the landed elite to convince people to go for free trade. So, I mean, we all know it was a good thing, but there's no doubt that Ricardo and all these guys were essentially creating an intellectual mood where free trade was not just good for the capitalist, but it was good for society as a whole. And Economist was a very effective part of that. To any of my colleagues who are listening to this, I, I don't think The Economist is a propaganda machine. <laughs> uh, okay, let, let's move on. Let's talk about the second wave of globalization. You mentioned this is the one that dramatically lowered the cost of ideas moving around the world. When did that start? How did that start? So basically, I, I think from something like 1820 to about 1990, globalization was all about goods crossing borders. Things were made one place and sold in another. That was because to coordinate complex ac industrial activities, high-scale things selling to the whole world market, it was geographically concentrated basically within walking distance in these big factories. And it was concentrated not to save trade costs. It was concentrated to save coordination costs and face-to-face -face costs. Now, when the ICT revolution came along, it became practical to separate very complex activities and keep them coordinated over space. So, for example, when I became a professor at first in the late 80s, I organized large international conferences by airmail letter. It, it took a year to organize a conference and you couldn't change anything at the end. Now, just imagine Bombardier trying to organize a production of tales of business jets in central Mexico and have them show up Quebec and fit into the planes seamlessly when the best they had was fax and airmail letters. It was just physically impossible. So what ICT did was remove the constraint on moving ideas and allow a, a spreading of factories across borders. The key wasn't the investment or the offshoring of the jobs. It was the know-how. The ICT revolution allowed G7 firms to take their technology, marketing, managerial, logistics, know-how in manufacturing and move it to nearby developing countries. Before the ICT revolution and the offshoring, you either had to make things with high-cost labor in Germany and high-tech, 
or low-cost labor and low-tech, say, in India. And in that world, high-tech, high-wage always won. Now we had high-tech, low-wage, and we saw an incredibly quick shift of manufacturing, the shares of manufacturing GDP from the G7 to six rapidly industrialized countries in just two decades. Now, that is an entirely different type of globalization. That's globalization where comparative advantage is denationalized. The boundaries of competitiveness now become international supply chains, which can cross countries. GM can take its technology and apply it in Mexico. It can apply the same technology in Thailand or, or China and thereby validate and, and increase the value of their knowledge. But it changed the competition with American workers. They were not competing with Mexican cars. They were competing with Mexican workers using U.S. technology, producing car parts that they could never have done by themselves without the global value chains. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the way that you put this is slightly different to a way that a lot of economists had, had put this change in the past, because the, the change that was emphasized in the past was this big increase in capital flows rather than sort of ideas flows. Well, absolutely. So, so actually, Paul Krugman wrote a book on foreign direct investment years ago for the Peterson Institute, where he called it two misunderstandings wrapped up in a misconception foreign direct investment. So first of all, there's almost no capital flowing. When GM sets up a factory down in Mexico, they're not moving massive amounts of cash. A lot of it's actually borrowed locally because what the world is not short of is capital. It's short of good investment ideas. Second of all, it's not direct. So frequently, these production facilities aren't directly owned by the G7 company, or at least not fully owned. It's often partial ownership. And lastly, a lot of it's not foreign because frequently they're organizing domestic supply chains, say, in Mexico or in Thailand, where there's a lot of local participation. And it's especially true in China. So it was not about the capital, but that's what people could see and measure. So people all the time talk about trade and investment, but what they really mean is the technology associated with that investment. But it's not really investment. This second wave of globalization were the social impacts. So who was affected, what types of jobs, what types of skills? Were the social impacts of this second wave much different from the first? Well, I think they were very, very different and it had to do with the technology. Sort of to oversimplify, the first wave of globalization was driven by steam power and eventually other types of mechanical power. And in some sense, this augmented the productivity of people who work with their hands. And since they were the ones who were earning the lower salaries, this productivity gain to manual workers tended to equalize because things like steam power only very indirectly help people who work with their heads who are earning more to begin with. ICT was an entirely different technology. ICT created better substitutes for people who work with their hands, but better tools for people who work with their heads. This created a skill twist which economists sometimes call awkwardly skill-biased technological progress, but I like to call it a skill twist. But in basically, it undermined the people who are working with their hands and glorified the people who are working with their heads and knowledge workers. And that led to a, a relatively rapid increase in inequality from about 1973, when computerization started to get into industry. So the social impacts in the first wave, at least from about 1870 on, were very, very positive. Economists sometimes call it the Great Compression. 
But from ICT, it went exactly the other way around, and we saw a huge increase in inequality because manual work was downplayed because there were so many substitutes. Mental work was upplayed because so we had so many great tools with information communication. In essence, ICT made big brains way bigger. It made people who had strong muscles much less important. That was the second wave. So let's move on to the third wave, which is the topic of your most recent book. So here the idea is that there's this digital trade revolution. How is that different to the ICT revolution? What, what kinds of technologies does it include? I like to focus on four developments that's accelerating this, what I call telemigration. So in other words, people sitting in one country, working in offices in another. The first is just domestic telecommuting. Many of us are telecommuting to work, say half day a week or a day a week or working on the road. And our companies are changing the way we work. They're adopting collaborative softwares like Slack or Basecamp or Trello that makes it easy to slot in remote workers. Now, up till now, most of the remote workers have been domestic telecommuters. But once they've arranged things to make it easy to slot in remote workers, they will eventually figure out that they could get at least some of that work for one-tenth of the price by going with foreign telecommuters. So the second one is like the container ships of telemigration. There are these internet platforms. The very largest one is called Upwork. It just went public uh, last year. And it's like eBay, but for services. eBay lets you find people who want to sell things intermediates the sale and the shipment. And Upwork and Mechanical Turk and Fiverr, a whole bunch of these sites, they help you find service providers, manage them, pay them, and check the quality of these whole things. So these platforms are actually how the telecommuters will connect between the offices. The third one is just the most obvious one, which is advances in telecommunications. So all of us have seen FaceTime and Skype get way better so it's much easier to, to interact with people. But now they're moving on to other technologies, one that's relatively expensive but often used in big corporations is telepresence, where you have a big meeting room and it looks like, and pretty soon you start to feel like the people are actually in the same room when they're actually in some other country. That's telemigration. The last one, and this is the big one that people are missing, I think, is machine translation. Machine tra translation language problems cause all sorts of barriers around the world, in particular in the service sector. There are hundreds of millions of talented, low-cost people who aren't in the world labor market because they can't speak English or French. Now they can. There was an absolute enormous revolution in 2016 and 2017, and at least among the major languages, instantaneous verbal and written translation is actually very good. This is going to change things enormously. And I think, especially in the service sector, these people won't come to us. They won't be making things they'll send to us, but they'll be providing their services in our offices for a lot less. Can I ask about the limits to this kind of you know, remote service provision? Because if you think about law or even healthcare, there are fairly strict licensing laws in you know, places like the US and, and Europe. It strikes me as improbable, at least in the, in the near term, that we're going to get, you know, relatively low-paid lawyers from, you know, insert developing country X, 
providing services remotely uh, to those rich countries. So, so where are the limits to these trends? There hasn't been that much substitution of, say, Guatemalan lawyers for New York lawyers. And a lot of that's because there is regulation. And in fact, when, when we start looking forward to the future of work, the question is, what can't telemigrants do? And in many industries, there's regulatory or accreditation issues, which means the foreigners cannot do it. And so that defines limits. I also think that many professions will ask for what I'd like to call shelterism, that when this technology is coming, it's not like they're against the technology. They're not against globalization. They just want a little shelter from the storm. And they will use health, safety, and probably above all, privacy regulations to slow down telemigration in a purposeful way. That relates to another limit I was thinking of, which is data localization laws. If there are countries out there that are prohibiting the transferal of, of data across borders, then presumably that also could act as a limit on, on these kind of you know, digitally supported services trade. That's absolutely right. I think it's, it's useful to drill down on what telemigrants can and can't do. And I'll give you a very concrete example where the data localization you're speaking of has an effect. In Switzerland, we have very strict banking laws, and people will go to jail if client data gets moved overseas. And as a consequence, all the back office jobs in Swiss banks are done in Switzerland by Swiss people because they can't take the risk. In essence, the privacy regulations are forcing a localization and acting as a protectionist device. And a similar thing goes on in some countries with medical records. So you, you, you can't take U.S. medical records and say offshore to the Philippines and have, you know, would be a great thing in terms of economics. You could get lots of people doing the data manipulation for much less, but they won't let you take the medical records out. So it's privacy. And there's a second set of restrictions that have to do with accreditation. So, for example, you actually need a New York bar certification in order to practice law in New York. So they will still need some New York lawyers. But I think it's interesting to look at what part of the legal profession actually requires a law degree. And we can slice it up much more thinly than we did, than we did before because it's so much cheaper to outsource. A nice analogy I like of is that what's happening to our professional jobs is what happened to factories in the 1990s. In factories before the 1990s, all the stages of production were jammed together in the same place to save on coordination costs. And the same thing with our jobs. We have stages of production, different chores that we have, and they're all jammed together because it's just too difficult to get somebody else to do them. But what we can now arbitrage a 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 labor difference, it will become in our interest, especially with digital technology getting so good, to unbundle and outsource parts of our job. So if I have it straight, for our current jobs, then there are some elements that will be stripped out or unbundled, as you call it, and we'll no longer do those ourselves. But is this where the robots come in? Yes, but it's not the robots you're thinking of. You know, it's not the Jetsons and Star Trek physical robots. Those aren't the ones that are going to be really disruptive going forward. It's the white-collar robots. They're white-collar because they're doing services to replace white-collar workers, not blue-collar workers. What they really are is software, software robots. 
Now, there's a two really two types of these white-collar robots. There's a low end that replaces people who are doing what you could think of about is assembly line knowledge work, where you open up an email and you make a change in somebody's cell phone subscription and then you open up the billing. That's like assembly line knowledge. But up to now, you needed a human to do it because robots could or computers could not read emails. Now they can. But there's a second kind, a very much higher level one, uh, which not only can read, see, talk, generate visual outputs, control an avatar, but it can also do sophisticated pattern recognition, which starts to replace some workers. Okay, so where? What professions are we talking about here? Where, where are the jobs going to be that, that people need to be looking out for these sorts of technologies? Well, let me start with the, the two levels. So there's a whole bunch of people who work in back office dealing with information uh, that will be affected. There's 20 million people in America who work in office and administrative jobs, and a lot of that's very robotic and rule-based, and that will be soon replaced. There's another type of robot, like IBM's Watson, or in my book, I write about uh, an AI platform that's called Amelia. And not only can this read, write, see, understand, generate language, but it also can recognize sophisticated patterns. Now, some of these are being used in professions like law, journalism, but let me go into the legal one. In law, this is something that people have felt for a number of years now, and it started with something called e-discovery. So you probably have seen those legal dramas where the bad doer delivers 20 boxes full of documents, and then they put together these young paralegals and and hotshot wannabe lawyers in a room, and they spend all night long reading through trying to find the big thing. That's done by a white-collar robot now with e-discovery. They feed in the documents, and they have some lawyers identifying what's interesting, what's not, and it can go through millions of emails and documents very, very quickly and summarize what what happened. So it started to replace paralegals and low-level lawyers. And law firms, as a consequence, this is I think people going to the legal profession have already recognized it, is it's much it's become a much flatter structure with fewer legal workers at the bottom and partners who are doing very, very well because they're sharing the profits with fewer actual humans. Okay, Richard, but plenty of people have worried about these sorts of phenomena before, and yet still we've managed to adjust and deal with changes. So why do you think this time is really going to be all that different? Well, I think we'd focus on two really big things. First of all, it's coming for service sector and professional jobs, not manufacturing jobs. For the last three centuries, both automation and globalization has primarily affected sectors where you're making things, shipping them, building them, designing them. This, because it's digital technology and services are mostly about information, is affecting service and professional jobs, which means a whole set of people who've never experienced automation because computers couldn't think, and they've never experienced globalization because services are non-traded. You can't put services in a container and ship them from China. These people never experienced it before, and they're going to see it appear very rapidly, both the automation with white-collar robots and the international competition with telemigrations at the same time, driven at the pace of digital technology. And that's really different. In the first wave, automation started a century before globalization started. In the second wave, automation started in the 70s, and globalization didn't really change until the 90s, 20 years later. 
This time, it all started, I would say, around 2016, when machine learning got extremely good, and telecommunications and machine translation started to get insanely good. So the first thing is it's affecting the service sector, not the manufacturing sector. The second thing is it's coming faster than most people expect, and in ways they don't anticipate. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, but I think is very important, is that service sector and professional workers who are not used to this will view this as incredibly unfair. So, telemigrants, for instance, won't pay taxes. In many countries, they don't pay taxes locally. They certainly don't pay taxes in the country where they're providing the services. They don't obey any labor standards. They don't ask for benefits like healthcare or paid holiday. And the same thing is even more true of the white-collar robots. And as a consequence, I think the service workers will eventually come to view this as incredibly unfair. And what really puts the rage and outrage is unfairness. So I'm a little worried, and that's why the second word in my title is upheaval, that the rapid displacement of white-collar workers will join with the last two decades of displacement of blue-collar workers, and we could have some real social turmoil. I'm not saying it will happen. I just think there is a, a path in which it seems likely that that might happen, and we need to be ready for it. Richard, one final question: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Both. In the short run, I think job displacement is being driven at the pace of digital technology, and it's somewhat explosive. I'm worried. Job creation is driven at the pace of human ingenuity, creating new jobs, which is much slower. So I'm worried in the transition that the displacement will outstrip the creation and will lead to some sort of upheaval. But in the long run, we will create all the jobs we need. Human ingenuity is boundless, and we've done it before. And those jobs will be better jobs. The white-collar robots will take all the robotic things out of our jobs, so we'll be using our human skills more. Moreover, all the jobs that left. Will require you to actually be in the same room with someone or something, so our jobs will be more local and therefore community-based. So in the long run, I think the future of work is jobs that are more local and more human, with our higher productivity will be richer and hopefully more generous. So I see the future as very good, but I'm very worried about the transition. Yeah, I'm just thinking about all the annoying menial tasks that I do that I'm excited about being automated. Richard, thank you very much. Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. That is all for trade talks. A huge thank you to Richard Baldwin at the Graduate Institute. Be sure to read his new book, The Globotics Upheaval: Globalization, Robotics, and the Future of Work. It was great to talk about it. The first chapter, which is the introduction and summary, is free on Google Books. If you、uh, don't feel like buying it right away, and make sure to also read his pretty new book. The Great Convergence: Information Technology and the New Globalization. We'll make sure to tweet out links to each of these. As always, a big thank you to Colin Warren who takes care of our audio. I should also note to listeners that this recording happened on the flight path between President Donald Trump's prayer breakfast and the White House, which is why there have been quite so many helicopters in the background. Anyway, do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes, and I'm at Chad Bown, and we're on at Trade Underscore Underscore Talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to books about trade and technology, two is better than one. It's almost like you're promoting a book, Richard. Or two. <laughs> Or two. <laughs>